0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Most people will be familiar with the classical biblical tale of Noah, written in the Hebrew Bible describing massive floods that washed over the earth, swallowing the lands and all earthly beings with the exception of a great ark. However, this legend is in fact much, much older than the account described in the book of Genesis. The story of the ark tracing back to a far more distant past, and the legends of ancient Sumeria. Leaving us with the question as to how far back these events go in the timeline of human history, and the many evolutions of religious mythology. Join us on Into the Portal for part one in our three-part series as we search for ancient mythological connections and the possibility of a very real flood that swallowed the world.
1: Hello and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray.
0: And I'm Andrew McKay.
1: And we're back with part one of an epic series.
0: Yes indeed we are.
1: (laughs) This ain't biblical. This is pre-biblical. That's right. Yeah we
0: can't (laughs) say this is a a story of biblical proportions because it only is in part. (laughs) It kind of um, is. Which is really cool and Mm -hmm. uh, we're really stoked on this series and I'm glad that Amber had the idea to do it. Um, Was that (laughs) me? Well, Should yeah. I, take I, mean, <laughs> I, I think you can. Honestly, yeah. You you brought this up. We started watching some documentaries and stuff. And
1: I guess it all started with that Myths from Mesopotamia book I was yes. looking into. And then I got really stoked on that. You
0: know, it's kind of funny. It's like we ordered that book to research for our first ever episode on the Lost mm. Army of Cambyses. And here we are over a year later, it's still paying dividends, which is pretty, pretty
1: awesome. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right. Before we get into all that, of course, we've got our usual housekeeping. And just right off the bat here, we just wanted to make that announcement that <laughs> our lucky winner of our coffee gator French press trivia contest with ITP, uh, it's on its way to its lucky owner. That's right. So yeah, Darren, Darren, you are no longer one of those who never wins anything. That's right. Congratulations,
0: <laughs> buddy. Yeah, you're about to be uh, to be making some uh, pretty epic coffee over there. So totally. We're pretty excited for you, and uh, yeah, I thought you'll be uh, receiving that soon.
1: Yes, and you know what's interesting? I was actually talking to another one of our listeners. Um, just I think this was yesterday even or the day before. Mm-hmm. And and they made the point they're like i don't think maybe a lot of people have heard of a french press before <laughs> maybe not necessarily right I, I mean it didn't even occur to me if you're not
0: a coffee buff necessarily you might not have coffee used feed. used one before um mm-hmm. yeah we never that never really occurred to us because because like we've used them a ton camping and things
1: like that right because but you know it's interesting though before i met you i don't think i had ever used one so right now that actually <laughs> creates a like that actually makes sense to me so what we are going to do is um, let Andrew give a little explanation (laughs) as to what a French press actually is. So it's
0: pretty simple, people. Instead of it uh, being like an automatic coffee maker, it's literally (laughs) like you have your your epic uh, coarse ground coffee beans. Mm. um, And it's literally just like a kind of like a teapot, I suppose you would say. It has a screened um, press that you would actually push the coffee grounds down with. And uh, yeah, I guess I don't know, know.
1: I feel like people might be familiar um, with the term camping coffee more so than French press. I feel like that's really fancy. It sounds
0: fancy. Like when you say camping coffee, it makes it sound like coffee that's going to like taste like battery acid, but it's oh, like French yeah. press coffee when done right is the best.
1: And with this coffee gator product, the stainless steel, like what is it? like it's vacuum, vacuum insulated. Sealed, yes. Insulated, vacuum insulated. Vacuum
0: insulated rather, mm-hmm. right? Well, but also too, like when you push it down, like you can feel that there's no air. Like mm-hmm. it is like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So it keeps it hot and it's just, yeah, they're, they're awesome. So that's more well, or less. It keeps
1: it hot and then also reduces the bitterness Right, factor. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I don't know. That's my uh, my poor description of a French press on an audio podcast here. Um, but seriously, hop over to coffeegator.com and just check out what they have. Um, you'll get a better idea, sort of the, uh, the other side of the coffee world if you're just used to drip coffee. So yeah. Exactly.
1: So as ITP's official sponsor, you can receive 15% off your Coffee Gator purchase with our promo code CORK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K. And that's at checkout. So if you visit coffeegator.com, that's c-o-f-f-e-e-g-a-t-o-r.com today and use our promo code and yeah, you can like seriously, man. This is gonna like change your coffee world. Absolutely. Like. Coffee world, coffee life, I don't even know. But anyways. Totally, totally. <laughs> let's get into it. All right. Well, actually, before we get into it, sorry, i am got to have all reviews. Well, let's get into <laughs> the reviews.
0: I thought that's what you meant.
1: True, true. Um, and I was really stoked because I just like looked on Stitcher this morning right before we sat down and we had another five stars sweet and now that i'm looking at it i copy paste it and it's like got double the five stars got ten stars, <laughs> <laughs> ten stars. <laughs> that's so funny but this was nice. from anfo 11 he wrote this about a month ago just says he's really enjoying the show discovered it the other day and if you like things paranormal like i do you will enjoy the show nice yeah i was really he's like excited to see the show grow five stars i was like Thank you, man. That's
0: Sweet. awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. We had a couple of new ones over on, um, on the American iTunes as well, which has been great. February has been a really good month. You guys have been showing us lots of love. We totally. really appreciate it.
1: It's the month of love, after all, right? Hey, got Valentine's there Day.
0: There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> so this one comes in five stars. It's titled "Boom," and this is from Wayne Kerr Nine. Oh, <laughs> um, he says, "Love, love the topics. You guys are pretty ba." Assuming that stands for badass. Um, <laughs> the different things they discuss are way different than the normal podcasts you listen to. Keep it up, Alan. Taylor out so that's, that's cool thanks man the other one came from Dan 870 and he says fantabulous five stars I really <laughs> like this podcast the man-eating plants and goblin episodes are my favorite
1: oh, yeah so that's those pretty some... sweet I love those episodes too
0: the man-eating plants definitely was one that people seem to
1: latch on it's kind of more obscure than I thought. Because like you know we do get the Venus flytrap as a very mainstream example. Right. Then, and then what was it, Goosebumps? They did that one um episode about or book about that yes, here. Yep, that's Don't right. go into the basement.
0: Exactly. Goosebumps <laughs> classic.
1: This yeah, I'd love that. Nanny plants are coming for you. All well, right. No,
0: we're glad you guys are loving it. And so keep those rolling in. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. You
0: ready to, uh, you ready to dive into, uh, dive into this pun intended, I suppose.
1: Join the way That's of right. the flood.
0: <laughs> so yeah, like we've said, we're getting into a series on none other than the great flood
1: mm-hmm. and
0: people will have Genesis and biblical stories come to mind right away but we're getting into a whole bunch of different things in this series because this stuff goes way, way back. Way back. Pre-biblical.
1: Oh, definitely. And just to clarify, you said the great flood. You (laughs) can say the, you can say great floods because potentially we're talking about multiple events happening. Maybe this is a singular. We're going to try and piece those little bits of the puzzle together. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we're going back pretty far. We're going back to the times of the Anunnaki, And no, we're not going to be arguing that they were a race of alien overlords. Um, (laughs) That is suggested in Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. That's not where we're going with this. Although they do occupy a very ambiguous space in history um, in a lot of ways. It's kind of like... we we'll get into them. We'll discuss them, obviously. They're interesting. Let's just say there's reasons why, obviously, people latch on to the ancient alien uh, Mm. argument when it comes to the Anunnaki, right? Exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: this goes back to pre-Christian stories um, of the creation of man, really, in the world of gods. Mm -hmm. So of heroic people rise into the occasion in times of danger, the classic hero's narrative, things Mm -hmm. like that. And I had to throw in this, uh, my favorite quote, and it's actually Mm -hmm. funny because I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was from our Homunculus episode. I believe uh,
1: believe it's Dr. Frankenstein. Is it Dr. Frankenstein? I just love
0: that part where he says, cheers to a new world of gods and monsters. (laughs) And I just feel like that kind of applies to this era of humanity when we're dealing with gods, demigods almost at the same time, and then humans that are trying to navigate the waters, so to speak, of this world.
1: Oh, totally. And then even, um, yeah, like you say monster, gods and monsters. And to me, when you say kind of like put those two side by side, it kind of speaks to this, exactly, that, like a more ambiguous time a realm when gods could be monsters or do monstrous things. Right. Or are perhaps a little bit more human or closer to, like, you know what I mean? Like, they're yeah. not these high in the sky, these, like, um all-knowing, all-powerful, all, like, you know, could do no wrong kind of thing, right? Like, Definitely. these are a lot more morally... Morally on par with mankind, or how we see, like you know, later mythologies deriving through mankind. You know, definitely,
0: and and less of a a, a gap between the people believing in them and that the gods themselves. You know what I mean? Like whereas today we've got like the church is the intermediary, the people don't really have a connection, mm. and there's the pope is the connection type thing, right? If you're looking at the Catholic faith, True. it was like going way back in the day. It was like yeah, it was more intermingling it was more just like it was what it was it mm-hmm. wasn't like you have to go to a church to try to contact the god or something exactly. like that you know or what I mean?
1: even how humans themselves and like ancient leaders were immortalized later on in legend right? right and we saw that when we were talking about the minoans and crete and all these examples of like ancient uh, greek um philosophy and uh, mythologies and stuff definitely so yeah a lot more blurring of the lines
0: Right. And even more lines are being drawn to past episodes. We can actually make connections even to the Gollum when we see mentions of man being created from a mixture of clay and blood of the slain gods.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: there's definitely some parallels going on here when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to creation. Totally. Yeah, it's pretty neat.
1: I love it. I love it all. And like the more I uncovered when I was reading through that book, that Myths of Mesopotamia book, I was like, everything's connected. (laughs) Like, no way. Like, I can't believe this. Like, it's pretty cool. Especially when you see things that, like, say, like, um, common tropes and Christian mythologies actually having these much more ancient roots and it, it to me it lends a lot more legitimacy to these narratives overall right even yeah. if they are being usurped and kind of passed along and and transformed over time to kind of suit this cultural and religious um zeitgeist of the moment or whatever right. you want to call it yeah you know what i mean like but anyways i agree
0: though it's still interesting there's the fact that it's being pulled from something that's so much older it's like there's substance to that there's yeah. something that happened there's
1: too. a nugget
0: there's nuggets there's there something. to be found indeed
1: so basically, the time and place we're dealing with is ancient Mesopotamia. We're going back to like the Bronze Age, early Bronze Age. Right. So we're talking like before three thousand BCE up to about seventeen hundred BCE um, for this first sort of part of the um, series. Uh, so this is ancient Mesopotamia, and again, like there's gonna be a lot of like a lot of names of peoples, like you know what I mean. Like where like yeah. they kind of evolve over time. So the first sort of instance of these peoples that have settled the most ancient, like the what's known as like the Fertile Crescent, were the Sumer's, and right. there's interesting. Um, there's a little bit of like a north-south split with these people. Um, the Sumer's were mostly in the south, the Acadians mostly to the north, and they kind of were sort of developing side by side until the Acadians took them over.
0: Interesting, okay. but yeah.
1: So Fertile Crescent. This is the area stretching between Eastern Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean coast, and then. All the way up to, like, Iran and Iraq and Turkey. And so, basically, the Persian Gulf. Right. So, it kind of is this... It's its a crescent. Yeah. It looks like a little baguette or something. I don't know. But, um...
0: And we've referred to it before oh, in yeah. the Sea Peoples episode and a few other episodes, right? So, people sure. are should be loosely familiar with the area we're working with.
1: Exactly. And so... Again, right. This is one of the earliest spots where people started to settle. We see the development of agriculture and animal husbandry and domestication, all this kind of stuff. Right. And so that was going on. Approximately began about fifteen thousand BCE, and then just continued on okay. on its trajectory. But essentially, yeah, like you get people like Jared Diamond making a lot of comments about this. Like I remember when we were in school, we read books by him, Niall Ferguson, all these people talking about basically the rise of civilizations and why different civilizations fall and rise and the reasons for such. Mm -hmm. Anyways, and so in this area, we have two very important rivers. And this is actually where the name Mesopotamia is kind of derived, because, like, meso means between, and the Potamia is, like, two rivers, like, roughly translated.
0: Okay, so between two rivers. Between
1: two rivers. And so it's basically just a huge delta in between them. And there is the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they run roughly parallel to one another through Mesopotamia from the northwest to the southeast. Mm -hmm. And the delta occurs at the eastern end, and it drains into the Persian Gulf. And so, okay... (laughs) <laughs> like it so it, if you can imagine river delta it's very marshy mm-hmm. it needs to be <clears throat> cultivated and there isn't a lot of natural resources right like not a lot of wood not a lot of minerals not a lot of the elements they needed to make bronze and that type of thing yeah <clears throat> so it was kind of one of those more like it was one of those like it was just characterized by a lack of resources yeah how like would you it, describe that? It's, like a, it's mean, like a desolate, sort of poverty ridden
0: Yeah, because area. they had Naturally. the. Yeah, because obviously, like it's described, it's fertile, but they don't necessarily have the tools they need to work with early on, anyway, like things like irrigation and like they're That's trying to figure it out. That's a great point,
1: right? actually. Now that you say that. Because, yeah, Fertile Crescent, obviously, you're thinking, oh, this is a natural Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever. But no. No. It had to be cultivated to actually create that Garden of Eden. Exactly.
0: Which would have required Bronze Age tools, um, which they obviously were able to get, but...
1: Eventually, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You see those developments. But it's interesting, right? Because the ancient Mesopotamia, like we've seen in other series, right? Like, this is the largely, sorry, the main mode of organization for, like, politics and cities is just these independent city-states. Yes. Mostly walled in. They had a lot of rivalries between these city-states. Um, lots of conflicts over water, particularly, and just land. Yeah. Like, the diversions of water from these rivers, things like that. Right. Um, and there was even moats that were constructed to protect the inhabitants from sieging enemies. No way. So it's, like, almost, like, it's crazy, right? Like, this is, like, the medieval times, right, happening, like, 3,000 years before or or 2,000 years.
0: That's definitely what it, no doubt, right, with moats. And then they make, we were watching a documentary, too, and they made the comment that, like, even during the actual Middle Ages in Europe, like, Mm -hmm. that's when this... Area was really kind of like taking a step ahead too, so it's just kind of funny this comparison right. here, where it's like moats. It's like very much like a medieval Europe, but we're we're a few thousand years away from oh, that. Oh,
1: a few thousand, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So essentially, what I refer to as Sumer is like this lower half of Mesopotamia, and this is the most anciently settled area. And then I guess it kind of extended up into the north end too with these Acadians and stuff. And you know what's interesting? I'm I know we talk about a lot of different places in geography when we're on, talking on the show. Yeah. But there was that one, that Anatolia Anatolia Peninsula <clears throat> that came up quite a bit when we were talking about the Sea Peoples. Yes, And that's essentially where modern-day Turkey is. Right. And so, okay, so if you want to get into it, like, the Acadians kind of were in that sort of realm, so in that upper northern realm of the Crescent. Okay. And then the Sumers were occupying that lower, almost like the Syrian, and then in that sort of neck of the woods.
0: Syria, Lebanon, that type exactly. of area. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's see. What else we got here? What? Oh, yeah, this was interesting. I came across this one reference that basically said that this land, the land of Sumer, mm-hmm. had the hand of God against it. And so it was because it was so unproductive, like the soil um like, like i said lack of natural resources like these rock formations like they don't even have rock to work with like it's just kind of a <laughs> they're nothing, struggling a nothing zone but yet these sumerians flourished and uh this is a cool quote this was from sumerians their history culture and character <clears throat> it says here here then was a region with the hand of god against it an uncompromising land seemingly doomed to poverty and desolation but the people that inhabited it the sumerians as they came to be known by the third millennium bc were endowed with an unusually creative intellect and venturesome resolute spirit in spite of the land's natural drawbacks they turned sumer into a veritable garden of eden and developed what was probably the first high civilization in the history of man yeah End quote. So that really beautifully sums up everything that I've been trying to say.
0: <laughs> Seriously. very It's really, really impressive. Um, and one of the main things, like just for sort of like to give some context here in terms of like their water supply, because mm-hmm. dealing with the Tigris and the Euphrates, obviously massive rivers, like, and you're thinking whenever we think irrigation, ancient irrigation, I'm always thinking of, like, the Egyptians, right? And how they were able to kind of, like, you know, irrigate their fields and this, this, that, and thing. And they actually,
1: they purposely flooded the Nile at certain points, too. Well,
0: exactly, and Mm -hmm. it was, but it was predictable. Like, that's the point I was going to make. So it's Mm -hmm. like the Nile was much more predictable. They could, they knew when the floods were coming and they could direct them where they needed to, whereas the Tigris and the Euphrates weren't predictable. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that same time of year type deal where they could time it and have these diversions for their crops, so they needed to be more on top of it they totally. need to be more creative and a little exactly. bit more their, <clears throat> their ancient engineers were a little bit more had more to
1: deal with exactly and then it's so interesting because that plays into the mythology and their gods are much the same like the nature of them they're unpredictable they're kind of um oh what's the word not wishy-washy but they're kind of like they'll say one thing and then they'll go back on it yeah they're, kind of uh, <clears throat> they're fickle Fickle, they're, fickle they're gods, very fickle. Right? But yeah, no, that that is a really interesting point. And again, right, like the Sumerians, and when we get into the actual stories themselves, how basically the what the gods are portrayed as their reality is really the reality lived on the ground by the people, pretty much, and how they've had to work so hard and to achieve what they've achieved.
0: Yeah, that's right. But Anyways. So, let's talk a little bit about what what else they did these ancient Sumerians because there's
1: so many things. It's
0: it's pretty incredible, right? And yeah. when you think when you think of things like even the wheel, yeah. you might your your brain might go back to like picturing some sort of like stone age person chiseling out a wheel. <laughs> and that's almost where we're at with the early ancient Sumerians, right? This was like pre-bronze age moving into the bronze age mm-hmm. and they straight up invented the wheel. Yep. Because they needed to, in this area, to get stuff around because mm-hmm. they didn't have the same waterways. They didn't have the same well, ability to move stuff.
1: They did start their cities along the rivers so, for transportation. Like, of course, like
0: all civilizations exactly. do. Exactly. Or mm-hmm. always next to water or by water. Um, but that's
1: interesting that you say the wheel, right? Because we saw that in that one documentary you're watching where... Um, they invented the wheel as part of their irrigation technology right
0: mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that was the connection I was trying to make there the mm-hmm. wheel in relation to their irrigation. water system and their needs there being yeah. very different than other places in in the near East or. The Middle East, right?
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the
0: wheel. They also invented the 12-month calendar, and they divided up um, the hours into, like, 60 seconds, minutes, and hours. So they actually, like, were the ones who broke up that concept throughout the day. That's pretty cool. Pretty pretty insane. Um, they were the first human civilization to have a code of law. Um, so 1792 to f- uh, mm-hmm. 52 BCE, the Hammurabi, yeah, as it was so referred to. that was that to.
1: one guy who's like, a Babylonian king, Hammurabi. Right. Or- Hammurabi.
0: Hammurabi. (laughs) That's a fun word to say. Hammurabi, Hammurabi. Hammurabi. It sounds like a hot sauce or something.
1: It probably is. Don't probably
0: work. is. They were also known um, to have an unusual flair with technological innovation, though, right? So we've already talked yeah. a little bit about their irrigation. They had sailboats that were quite profound for the time.
1: Oh, and those round boats, too. Oh, that's right. The ferry boats.
0: That, and that's something really, really, really important to this yes. and the idea of a flood that we'll get into later on. Round boats that you don't see anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. Pretty bizarre. They also had a very specific plow that they invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Uh, The archway, so they were constructing things, yeah, like architectural feats, domes, vaults.
1: Oh, the round building, it's like this round frame, and that was a really cool one, and that was kind of played into the boat technology again, too, right? Similar principle.
0: Right, totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, and then of course, casting and copper and bronze, they probably would have ended up having, um, vast trade networks, uh, up mm-hmm. to the UK and things like oh, that where tin was coming from, right? You know
1: where it would have come from? No, not even that. It would have come from the Anatolia Peninsula because that oh, had a okay. ton of natural, like the raw metals. Lots to of tin
0: to... to make the, to actually make bronze.
1: Tin and copper. Tin yeah. and
0: copper. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Because we, I remember we mentioned during the Sea Peoples episode, I guess this is, yeah, we're in a slightly different location here though, but like the Minoans would have been possibly trading tin. Oh, true. Uh, further north.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway. They're all in the same neck of the woods. Same
0: neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the trade roads could have been? So, okay. Yeah, I mean, all this was necessary to control the, like we said already, the unpredictable rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they needed these these very, very, very complex systems of irrigation in order to basically survive. They grow well they grew rather <laughs> wheat millet barley mm-hmm. um, and because of how effective their irrigation was they could actually sometimes harvest these twice a year exactly. which was unheard of
1: well the irrigation uh, yeah exactly irrigation that could um, it basically they would flood the fields and then it would help regenerate the nutrients in the soil and all this kind of stuff exactly. and then they would rotate their crops too right oh you know what's interesting too that i totally forgot we were talking about how they have like basically no resources, no wood. These boats were predominantly made from reeds. So reeds was like their main building um substance. Yeah. Like they didn't have they didn't have lumber really. No. They didn't have a lot of the stuff that we would normally use they to build. They built
0: stuff. entire palaces out of Compressed reeds that were more durable than brick in some cases.
1: Compressed reeds, eh? Wow. Like
0: we want, we uh, yeah, we saw it in the documentary the other day. Like that... literally, like columns. It's like it looks like you're inside of like a medieval church, like how vaulted and massive it is. It's literally made out of reeds, compressed.
1: Oh wow. I'm thinking of that one, the city of Ur. I went. That was definitely made of stone. <laughs> that was <Yes>. not.
0: <laughs> they, uh, they of course would have had structures like that too, though. That right, just aren't there anymore, obviously.
1: But mm, or crumbling and decaying now. Mm. Um, there's a few sites that are quite prominent but it's hard to get to them because they're in iraq and it's kind of just small.
0: yeah well obviously right now it's not uh, not
1: the best place to be not
0: uh i mean you probably get some pretty cheap vacation rentals out there these days
1: uh <laughs> yeah like, like free <laughs> like <laughs> they pay you to stay they there. they pay
0: you yeah <laughs> yeah <That> rem- <laughs>
1: okay
0: i had a joke there but i'm gonna i'm not gonna
1: say <laughs> oh, man. all right
0: but um Okay, so just to cap off w- what I was saying there, though, they're pretty in- intense people. These ancient Sumerians—they've—they've they've, mm-hmm. um, set the stage for like the next era of human civilization. That is the Bronze Age, right, where we saw yeah. these crazy things happen, like the Sea Peoples, and these just these these events that changed human history. Yeah. But one of the more most important things about them was that they contain the earliest examples of organized religion, Mm -hmm. these ancient Sumerians. I know, right?
1: It's kind of cool. And, like, these people, they're so level-headed, they're so pragmatic, they're so industrious, and I feel like their religion closely followed in those footsteps. Yes. And, like we mentioned before, like, it is a polytheistic religion, and so (laughs) their gods oftentimes are as unpredictable as their natural world, which I find very telling. It's very relevant to all the things we're going to be discussing as far as this great flood event and that's why we're trying
0: to build this up right like we we want to we we're going back to the ancient roots of the flood so you got to we want we Mm -hmm. want everyone to be familiar with who these people are and the nature of the religion and the context
1: the context because why why do we have these narratives and why do they persist and why do they transform and change and and become inducted into all these different types of um religious traditions exactly that's the that's the nugget that's so fascinating to me (laughs) because it's like this is cool man anyway sorry (laughs) (laughs) but anyways yeah so they're gods unpredictable um a lot of them are around there's almost like a hierarchy of gods too And I thought this was really interesting, like, again, right? So these Sumerians have no grand illusions about any sort of, like, no no fluffiness, no, like, oh, um, like, New Testament forgiveness or anything like that. No, none of that.
0: Nice. No, no niceties (laughs) like that. No niceties.
1: They're even more hardcore than the Old Testament. And it says here, I had this one note, heaven, so the afterlife, because this, again, is quite significant, this whole conversation. Heaven was reserved exclusively for deities so not for humans. <laughs> and upon their deaths, as in human deaths, all mortal spirits, regardless of their behavior while alive, were believed to go to Kur, K-U-R, which was a cold, dark cavern deep beneath the earth, and was ruled by the goddess Aret- Aresh-Kigal, and- Areshkigal, and the only food available to eat is dry dust. So, so you essentially go to hell.
0: So <laughs> why would you ever listen at all?
1: I know. It just makes Like weird. I
0: would be rebelling But every the thing day. is though
1: But the thing is though, when we get into the whole genesis of man and why they were created in the first place, it right. kind of comes to make sense. But anyway, so again, fascinating parallels to our past episodes discussing this whole spiritual aspect of the Earth's depths. Yeah. I find this really cool. And again, right, the uh, journeying do, to a cavern deep in the underworld, or well, in the Earth, the underworld, right? I'm thinking ancient Egyptian mythology, all that kind of right. stuff. And how increasingly so, even with our last series, The Goblins, right? I'm thinking that, and even with our series with Minoan Crete, how there was that one underground cavern that was quite substantial for right. their religious practices. Yes. And they had like a whole idol to this one goddess in there. Yeah. And they would get like high on, what was it again? They, were, Ooh,
0: um, they had
1: something going on there. <laughs> Anyways, oh, it was a whole spiritual thing. What was it? But again, right, it speaks to the idea that these are possibly physical places or there are representations of these metaphysical places exactly. that can kind of maybe blend into maybe those miners that we were talking about last week Maybe they stumbled upon something to do with the duot or the <sighs> underworld or co- whatever they're talking about here with this uh, core.
0: Quite possibly. What have you made
1: your Coor. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm
0: I'm even seeing co- some connections here too with the dry dust, um, even connecting to the golem. The idea of oh, yes. um, them breathing life into into an inanimate object with like dust, like mm-hmm. with like you know the fragments of the earth or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's so kind of interesting here. It's like these people sent to this cold, dark cavern all you have to eat is this dry dust it's like <laughs> that's the just the most raw fundamental element of like life
1: totally that's what, what weird, we are yeah and so that's what you eat well that makes so no much it's sense sort of
0: weird right it's so
1: cool so again right yeah just to reaffirm they're going into the depths of the earth they're not going up to the heavens no. and we will see this um i don't even want to call it a binary because i feel like it's a lot more confusing and not as clear is just like a, a dualistic kind of atmosphere between the gods themselves because you see um we're not going to get into all of the fundamentals of sumerian religion but essentially there are sky realm earth realm there's like an under earth realm there's all like sorts a of things type deal exactly and yeah. then there's different people that rule over these like enki is god of the earth realm kind of thing
0: mm-hmm. and then he
1: has a huge part to play in the creation of man ultimately right but
0: anyways, so I mean, yeah, and and very much like like we just said the duat and this and that and the other thing we've mm-hmm. mentioned Egyptian religion, many many times and very much like that and all religions like this played a significant role in the actual makeup of society of the politics of the day to day political society for the ancient Sumerians, mm-hmm. um, you know where the first leaders of these city states were essentially you know they were the priests they were mm-hmm. the theocratic officials um, the
1: shamans the shamans those closest to the to the spiritual exactly realm exactly right mm-hmm.
0: um, so atrahasis um, and oh, how do I pronounce this? Another Zisudra. One? Zisudra are, is an example of one.
1: Okay. And those, that is totally decontextualized right now, but those are we'll essentially that, the though. heroes of our flood stories.
0: Exactly. For mm-hmm. the Sumerian flood story.
1: Same so, person, different name.
0: Exactly. So this, <laughs> these were the rulers before we had kings supplant them. Right. And come in and basically kind of, you know, take over and be and, the non-demigod rulers, I guess you would even mm-hmm. say, potentially.
1: Yeah, and then it's interesting too because in the very earliest versions, you get the priests are kind of the the, the leader, right? They're the um, the hero that builds the the ark and mm-hmm. then leads the salvation of mankind or whatever. Right. But then later on, we get the kings kind of supplanting these spiritual leaders. You get different versions of these same stories where it's right. essentially human corruption is the cause of the flood. Okay. It's not. Other reasons that are a little more simplified that we'll get into in a second here. Right. But yeah, it's interesting. You get a progression of the reasons why the flood happens in the first place.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Mm, I'm looking forward to getting into this. (laughs) But another massive aspect that connects to this flood story is that the ancient Sumerians had this very interesting boat technology centered on the use of reeds predominantly, Mm -hmm. like we already mentioned a few minutes ago. So these reed boats were the main method of transportation along the Euphrates and the Tigris, Mm -hmm. usually built to be obviously much, much smaller than what you would picture as an ark. So
1: cute. They look like little, they look like big umbrellas that people just float in.
0: Totally. It's like like the teacup ride from Disneyland, but like a boat and you're scooting around the river and getting fish and stuff. And they're very
1: stable, apparently.
0: Really? No, absolutely. Which makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense, right? I mean, if you're in a, in a circle rather than like a canoe That's shape, tippy. Right? Yeah, right? Exactly. A little bit more stable. Yeah. Really, really interesting because this is the type of technology that would have been able potentially, uh, yeah. so okay. to, to build
1: a arc to
0: build like a super, a super boat. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Something that would have balanced itself. You got elephants on one side and something on the other side, then you're going to have to have something a little bit more buoyant. and <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, elephants. eh? They're going (laughs) to go right in the middle.
0: (laughs) But yeah, these boats um, and ancient Sumerian technology have been proven to be effective in building a vessel that would technically be big enough to be called an ark and house a grouping of people and animals that could have been you know, at least large enough to latch on to this legend, to like, to be this Mm -hmm. legend um, in history, which is pretty neat. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and the ancient cultures that followed, so the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Akkadian empires, they all contain stories of this massive flood event, just like the ancient Sumerians.
1: Exactly. So that's where I'm talking about like these whole later progressions and like additions and, and like, you know, like, um, revisions in the story and whatever else like it's it's so fascinating
0: it totally is so like let's let's get a little bit more context as to who these preceding empires were Mm -hmm. so after the Sumerians we get the Akkadians uh the Akkadian Empire
1: yeah and that's kind of what I referred to right off the bat where it was like the Akkadians were kind of more so in the north kind of bordering on the Anatolia Peninsula sort of region right and they kind of existed like together simultaneously until until the akkadian takeover
0: okay so they Mm -hmm. almost had like one the akkadians and the sumerians would have been speaking a common dialect and things like that totally Mm -hmm. okay
1: and they had very much um they had a lot of connections like a lot of trade a lot of just like you know just back and forth
0: right and obviously Mm -hmm. they're functioning in the same area so the akkadian empire is exercising their influence across mesopotamia the levant You know, Anatolia, they're sending military expeditions as far south as Dilmun and Magan, which are basically modern uh, Oman.
1: Exactly. So, the
0: bottom of the Arabian Peninsula.
1: Mm -hmm. And so, it was kind of like peaking in and about like uh, 2400 BC was kind of the the timeline there. So, a little bit after 3000 BC. Right, because it was
0: established around the third millennium. So
1: Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So, but then eventually, of course, we have the Canaanites and the Israelites and their mythologies, and we've referenced them before from the sea people's episodes mm-hmm. and of course the canaanites and israelites are like the most epic biblical enemies of each other they hate <laughs> each other that's yeah, like exactly. that is the most like if you're gonna do like a ancient ufc cage mash like it is gonna be like these two groups of people <laughs> so but their mythologies are filled with stories of massive flood events as well mm-hmm. of course that wipe out you know the majority of people and leaving just very few remainders including of course a hero figure
1: mm-hmm and yep. we're all
0: familiar with Noah and Noah's Ark, oh, of Noah. course. But the Sumerian stories predate the Hebrew Bible by over 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And they're believed to have been the very, very first renditions of this tale, like we've made reference to already. Yeah. And But they weren't actually written down until the early 17th century BC on clay tablets. Yeah. It's
1: or even hundreds. earlier.
0: And I don't know if I actually mentioned this before. I think I, I should have or I did, but oh. the Sumerians invented one of the most the earliest form of writing. <gasps> Did oh we gosh. not mention this? I we think didn't. we accidentally we skipped over it. So let's just touch on that
1: then. Yeah. Cuneiform. Cuneiform.
0: Very, very interesting. It looks like little bird feet.
1: It's it's essentially <laughs> wedge writing. So you have like a stylus that is like a wedge shaped thing, and you're just basically imprinting into clay.
0: Exactly. And the never er-
1: wrote on a paper. No,
0: no papyrus, no paper, like mm-hmm. like the Egyptians' papyrus. But what is really interesting about this is it's not just writing in terms of like when we were talking about even the Minoans, when we were talking about, like, uh, linear B and those types of languages, this cuneiform was emphasizing the consonants of words, which is oh. really interesting, right? Even
1: before that, it was literally just the picture symbol of it, what it was depicting. Exactly, It was, like, literally just a stalk of wheat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then it would change into being, like, wheat, the word, like, as it would sound, which is pretty neat, because that's, that's basically, cool. that's exactly how our letter lettering functions right now. They have sound consonants attached to the phonetics right Mm -hmm. and then we we spell things out and you're gonna reference this guy in a minute here but um it's actually really easy to learn which is pretty cool I think that's
1: he said. Yeah, <laughs> he
0: yeah. So he he actually had a bunch of. This um, is Irving Finkel. So, yeah, so the Irving of the Finkel is British
1: Museum of Antiquities. Exactly,
0: he had a bunch of um, British school school kids there. I think they looked to be about grade four or five, and he was teaching them cuneiform, and they were learning it oh, super fast. Oh, they right. were like writing their own of. little um, fairy tales and stories and stuff. Cute. So. Super profound, but also something that like the masses could learn.
1: Makes sense, which is pretty pretty
0: crazy to think, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, but before we get into Finkel here, though, because he's Mm -hmm. the guy who actually deciphered this flood myth from these ancient Sumerian tablets, right? Yeah, totally. So, okay, so these stories predate the Hebrew Bible two thousand years. the The story itself was found at the site of Nippur on these tablets. Okay, so this is the oldest Sumerian city and the seat of worship for Enlil, the lord of wind. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay, that makes
1: sense if you look at pictures of this place, because it literally looks like this would be the windiest, very most desolate place.
0: Totally. (laughs) It's
1: like this huge monolithic thing.
0: (laughs) Right, no kidding, right? (laughs) Um... Yeah, and then the other sites across the Mesopotamian region, there's been other uh, there's been other tablets and things like that found as well. And they tell this creation of man.
1: Exactly. And more mm-hmm. specifically,
0: more importantly for this episode, they talk about a great flood.
1: Yeah. So this is yeah, this Irving Finkel guy, he he is the renowned cuneiform expert and he does work with the British Museum of Antiquities and He's such a funny looking guy. Oh my goodness. I love him so much. He looks like oh, he looks like the guy that had the Philosopher's Stone or he's, something Oh yeah,
0: no. Oh, looks oh, like he's oh, straight
1: oh. out of Harry Potter. Yeah, man. what's that
0: guy's name again? Come on. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I always want to say Paracelsus and it's never Paracelsus. Oh, it's sure. the other the Paraselsus. other one. The other alchemist guy.
1: Oh, oh God.
0: Just brain oh, oh, for um, it right now. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: <was> so bad. <laughs> hey, never mind. I'll um, think on
0: it. You get going here. Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel. <laughs>
1: God. i just needed to rearrange my brain all right so yeah um irving finkel looks like the necklace out <laughs> that was the point we were <laughs> that's
0: at. the point Yeah.
1: <laughs> but anyways yeah so he works with the british museum of antiquities and he st- he studied this language his entire academic career yeah. and you can tell it's been a long one because he's got a beard that's probably down to the floor by now and anyways he he was presented okay so there's this really interesting totally fascinating story and again it's like the synchronicities is so weird we've been joking about synchronicities all week (laughs) but anyways yeah so he was presented okay so this man who was like a british british dude whatever living Mm -hmm. in britain
0: (laughs) (laughs) very specific (laughs) very specific
1: (laughs) anyway so he actually had a father that went traveling uh, back in the day way before this guy was ever born he went to damascus and while he was in damascus he was in the markets and these um like massive markets. And he came across all this pottery and all these like pieces. And he ended up buying this one piece of pottery that was very, its small. It's like the size of your palm. And uh, it's a, it's a rectangular shape and it had this strange symbols all over it on either side. Then they didn't know what the heck it was. They kind of forgot about it. It was sitting in the house for like 40 years and the man passed away and his son, he discovered it and he's like, you know what? This could probably be significant. Let's just take this to the museum. Mm -hmm. And So thank God he did because this was literally the missing Piece of the puzzle, and so Irving Finkel, the way he describes it, was like he essentially took one glance at this thing and realized he was reading the original flood story, like way before Noah, way before the flood story. Exactly the flood story. So yeah, the parallels and specifics of this tale point to the idea that this is not coincidence. That essentially the versions that we see in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Bible. Have been derived from these earlier versions and, right. um,
0: which blew people's minds.
1: <laughs> yes, like this was like exactly unheard of. The Bible at this point was like the oldest, um, historical document that we basically had in our possession. more position. or less. Yeah, more or less. Like, there could have been other, others as well, but again.
0: As far as, like, being detailed and establishing timelines of religion, like, absolutely, mm-hmm. like, the Hebrew texts are the ones that they're working with. This this exactly. all.
1: So this, again, yeah, it just sets the timeline back so much further and then, again, puts those missing pieces of the puzzle together, right? Because as they start reading this, they're like they realize and and even more tablets right as they come into their possession they're realizing like they're putting together all these pieces because unfortunately these tablets were highly damaged of course and so you get like less than a third sometimes that's actually readable yeah which is really unfortunate but anyways yeah so finkel and his british museum people they basically put together the last pieces of the puzzle and again right like hey so this was the sumerian but what we're gonna see is the akkadian tradition kind of broaden the narrative and add more elements in mm-hmm. and I just wanted to oh man so yeah we already kind of cleared up the sort of muddiness between like Sumerians and Akkadians and this idea that the Akkadian dialect this is weird like it's not weird to me but sometimes like you hear Assyrian you hear Akkadian you hear Babylonian you're like what the heck are all these people you know what right. I mean? Yeah. But essentially all you need to know is that very they're all in the same neck of the woods. We're all talking about the same Mesopotamia. In different points of history, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: exactly. And they would have all had different sort of evolutionary trajectories with their like language and stuff. But it would have been s- like similar. There would have been commonalities, obviously, exactly. like in the region, right?
1: And so another confusing part of this too is like so they're getting a bunch of these clay tablets, and they're kind of spread. Like the oldest ones are more so in the east, like in the Iraq sort of region. And then as writing spreads throughout Mesopotamia, it goes more westward. Right, is kind of the trajectory, but Again, yeah, so we've got so much of this lost. Like, sometimes you can see more than 20 or 30 lines are lost in a single section kind of thing. And so it's kind of, it's hard to piece together and comprehend the overall themes and stories as part of this, like, very complex literary tradition. Mm -hmm. Super complex. And again, right, like, yeah, like, I don't even know, like.
0: But it's pretty crazy, though, like how, okay, so, but it's, it's interesting how Finkel went about actually deciphering what he had to work with. Oh, that's true. Right? Because obviously there's a lot that's lost. There's a lot that can't be seen. But they went about it in a very similar way to almost like the Antikythera mechanism when we mentioned in our Ancient Technologies episode. Oh,
1: that's so true. Where they
0: did a 3D scan of this scroll, essentially what it was. Similar Mm -hmm. to the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, where they Mm -hmm. had to go through uh, using basically like a a x ray essentially, right? Um, and he was able to analyze it in three dimensions without damaging it any further,
1: mm-hmm. and to pick of... up all those little tiny details that exactly. might have been missed. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's just
0: pretty sweet. I mean, like when we're working with, you can't even imagine what it'd be like for you know people discovering these types of artifacts in the 20s and 30s and 40s and stuff when they're out there with the uh oh, um, the Royal Geographic Society and <laughs> yeah, stuff like yeah. that, right? And then they have no way of <laughs> interpreting anything no it's just you're just gonna crush it to dust or you're gonna right like it's 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 it's, it was a different world
1: lost even before all this hey
0: 99.999 percent of all evidence for anything
1: ever (laughs) (laughs) anyways yeah so finkel once finkel had made this discovery again right like we're this is a huge revolution in deciphering ancient mythologies ancient religion all this kind of stuff And before we actually get into, because we're going to do some readings here and we're going to get into the early Sumerian version and then the Akkadian slash Babylonian versions. Yeah. But um, before we do that, I think one other thing that's important to mention is the fact that like you already said, we're going to see the Anunnaki in these stories and they they don't really have any context in the story. But my question was like, how do these guys fit into Sumerian religion? Because they're almost referred to as like the separate sky realm or something like that and so Hence again right ancient alien stuff that can get misinterpreted <laughs> like Indeed. huge yeah. but essentially the anunnaki or anunnaki i don't
0: know uh, I mean I, in ancient aliens they say anunnaki anunnaki i don't think it really
1: anunnaki? I'm
0: sure there's a few different I'm
1: going to say Anunnaki. no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but anyways <laughs> so there there's sort of a hierarchy of sumerian deities or classification system i guess and it's interesting because a lot... The majority of these deities belong to what's called the Anuwa. Anua? Anuwa? Okay. Anuna? I don't know. I don't know how to say that.
0: An... It's spelled
1: A-N-U-N-N-A. <laughs> and it basically just means like it's offspring. And so, okay, this is kind of confusing. But again, there's these two... There's Enlil and Inanna. And so those are two gods. And essentially... Oh, wait, no. Do I have that right here? I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little confused. I think offspring of An and Ki are basically the Anunnaki.
0: Oh, it's kind of how
1: that sort of This is where,
0: and this is what I mentioned before. It's like we're in this era, we're dealing with this sort of like jumbled context of like you said, like there's, there's three different realms almost this, that almost describes demigod to me, right? Like they're, you know what I mean? Like they're offspring. Yeah.
1: So uh, I think I have that confused. Um, Enlil and Inanna are part of the Anunnaki.
0: So they are the offspring.
1: And essentially, yeah. I, okay. don't, know, I don't know, maybe we should scrap the word offspring. Okay. <laughs> but essentially, what the Anunnaki are is these seven deities that are actually referred to as these underworld judges. And so, again, it's almost like a council. Hmm. And we see that a lot, right? In Greek mythology, you get the council of the gods. You get people, they they. Elements of democracy over the place, but they basically vote on stuff, right? And there's, yeah, votes cast. There's um, appeals made to a group of people, right? It's not just like one supreme leader, mm-hmm. and so that's where when we get into these stories, we're gonna see the Ananake as essentially the decision makers, and we we're not referring to aliens. I just want to make that. I think people clear. are
0: aware that we're not referring <laughs> to aliens.
1: I'm just gonna say, but again, like that's
0: another reason why people would say that they are true right like that they're making these decisions or that they have yeah, this the, council of the, the whatever alien and like,
1: overlords yeah, kind of thing and the the whatever overlords. and again like there there is sort of a lot of vague vagaries associated with all these people too well people all these mythologies and stuff so Definitely. again right open to misinterpretation as well as information absolutely mm-hmm.
0: well i think uh that is a good spot for, for us to take a little bit of a break yeah yeah so We're going to get into uh, some more of this uh, early Sumerian flood story in just a second, but before we do, we are going to take a very quick promo break for Coffee Gator. Yeah, yeah. Are you a coffee fiend like us? Then Coffee Gator is about to become your new best friend. Coffee Gator is creating products that are simple to use, made of quality materials, and have a beautiful aesthetic.
1: Oh my god, that pink series is amazing.
0: (laughs) It really is. But of course, there is something for everyone. Coffee Gator will up your coffee game, whether you are an instant coffee fan or an espresso addict.
1: Seriously. They've got every accessory under the sun, from stainless steel canisters, pour-over systems, cold brew coffee-making kits, and insulated glass mugs. They have the tools you need to make your best cup yet, including helpful tips and tricks on their website. So, simply use promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off your purchase at coffeegator.com. That's 15% off your purchase using promo code cork spelled Q-U-A-R-K, at checkout. So, visit coffeegator.com today.
0: Start drinking better coffee with CoffeeGator. And we're back.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so... We're jumping back into. <laughs> I keep having these uh, these water puns. Diving in, jumping in. But let's get back into the early Sumerian flood story in Eridu Genesis. So mm-hmm. this is kind of like, yeah, the Sumerian Genesis story, essentially, right?
1: Exactly. It's so like the the earliest version, and it's it's very vague too, or not vague, but it's very piecemeal. Right. A lot of it's been lost.
0: Indeed, mm. that's right. So we were talking about Mr. Finkel and his. Um, how he was able to decipher some of these... (laughs) you Finkel? I've I've had that on the tip of my tongue since we've said that name. (laughs) Shout out to uh, my favorite film. (laughs) No, one of my favorite comedies. So cool. Love some Ace Ventura. Okay, but these tablets, like you said, only two-thirds of them Or or Sorry, a lot of it wasn't decipherable, but it's estimated that actually over two-thirds of the tablets containing this story have been destroyed, but he was still able to pull the the juicy meat of it from one of those main tablets, right?
1: Not even, though. That's kind of funny. Like you said, the main juicy. It's like, no. Basically, what you get is a lot of... um, Sometimes it'll be a single word or legible in a line. Sometimes it'll be, like, 30 lines missing, or you'll get halfway through a line, and then there'll be, like, the... The, the actual subject is lost so you get a lot of partialities and when I was reading through some of this I was like this is so frustrating like I'm getting like you know like you get to a little bit that sounds like it's about to go somewhere and then it's just cut off and right. it's just like lost
0: but there was the one larger tablet though that had a chunk of that story oh, yeah. on yeah, it I did that they emphasized as being like that was the key to being yeah. like hey okay like there's a few other bits missing from it but like that's the crux of, yeah, the, exactly. of the flood story you get the
1: framework um, of it all yeah know. exactly mm-hmm.
0: so like like we just said so along with the story of man's creation there's also this great flood um purportedly you know sent by god to destroy mankind for a bunch of different reasons <laughs> the um, gods
1: not the, god <laughs> sorry,
0: right we're not dealing with a single god yet that's no. right. it's not monotheistic <laughs> yet
1: exactly um mm-hmm.
0: so the gods are choked for various different reasons right mm-hmm. um so Okay, and there are several elements that continue into later traditions, like such as the reason the gods destroy man. So, okay, here's here they are. One of them is that they're too noisy. Mm-hmm. Keep it down, down there. You guys are making way too much noise. Yeah. Um, later versions are ta- po- talking about possible just human corruption.
1: Yeah,
0: things like you know.
1: Oh, there's some that are saying like overpopulation. Like there's one reference to like the city um, with half-filled baskets. Right. Um, yeah. So that again points to and famine. Flies. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So in this in this ancient version 7 days and 7 nights of of rain bring mm-hmm. this flood. Um, that's a pretty
1: good that's a very consistent element in a lot of these the 7 days 7 nights. Right. Until we get into the Old Testament.
0: Exactly. And there's a reference to the hero releasing birds in order to try to discover land, after which the land has all been swallowed up by water. So that's another parallel we right. see in the Genesis story that we'll obviously get to.
1: Exactly. I believe it's three birds released. And then the third one comes back. I think it has like an olive branch in it.
0: Yeah, so I, think I think that think. it... Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> so, and in this early story, the hero is Atrahasis, who we've mentioned, but it's re- he's referred to um, by his Sumerian name of... Oh, my gosh. Ziasudra, Ziyasudra. Okay. And is the ruler of the city of Shuru, Shurupak? <laughs> Shurupak? Shurupak. Shurupak. <laughs> so a throne that was actually passed down to him from his father. Um, and Atrahasis is in tune with the gods. So he's almost like this kind of demigod.
1: He's always described as the man with his ear to god kind right. of thing. Or like he has his eyes open to god. Or exactly. godza or whatever.
0: He's, he's actually even known as the priestly king of men. Yeah. which is interesting. Again,
1: yeah, so that plays into the whole, like, this is the very, very early version of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Sumerian culture would have been um, ruled over by priest kings. Right. Or just priests as rulers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so Zio was one of these people.
0: Right, and he was described as, like, a seer. So, like, a visionary, like, someone who could be, yes. who could obviously, like, predict things, or at least he had a connection to the spiritual realm. So very much like, again, like Noah talking yeah, to God
1: totally. and being
0: given these messages, right? Heeding the warning. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he, exactly, he heeds these warnings of the gods as illustrated in a passage from this uh, Sumerian Genesis, which basically says, and as uh, Ziyasudra stood there beside it, he went on hearing, step up to the wall to my left and listen, let me speak a word to you at the wall and may you grasp what, what I say. You may heed my advice. By our hand, a flood will sweep over the cities of the half-bushel baskets and the country." The decision that mankind is to be destroyed has been made. Mm-hmm. A verdict, a command of the assembly cannot be revoked.
1: Mm, that is so rich, full of so much stuff. Mm-hmm. The idea, yeah, exactly. So Ziyasudra is the only one listening. So again, it speaks to this idea that man has kind of shut himself off. If you want to play into that whole like, man, is too noisy. It doesn't hear God anymore kind right. of thing. And then the whole, yeah, the reference to the half bushel basket. So famine element. And also the verdict a command of the assembly. So that's where you get a democratic element there where it's like they voted on this. The gods have voted on your demise. (laughs) That's it. I love that. That's so fascinating. And it cannot be revoked. There is no going back.
0: Right. There's no... There's no oh, court of appeal.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and sorry, just um, the guy that's actually speaking to Zeusudra right now is Enki, the guy that I mentioned that's the ah, god of the earth realm. Right. And he has a big part to play in the actual creation of man that we'll see in a second in this okay. later version of the whole thing. But, anyways, so yeah, the story does continue on with Zeusudra listening to Enki and building the ark as ordered by him. And essentially what happens is, very much like Noah, builds this thing, loads it with pairs of animals. And this is a quote. This is when the actual flood hits. Okay. All the evil winds, all stormy winds, gathered into one and then with them, the flood was sweeping over the cities of the half-bushel baskets for seven days and seven nights. After the flood had swept over the country after the evil wind had tossed the big boat about on the great waters, the sun came out, spreading light over heaven and earth. Hmm. Hmm. So you get the two realms, heaven and earth there. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So this, again, this is a very, very piecemeal, very simplified early version. Yeah. And then we're going to see more elements added in as we get the sort of Semitic Akkadian and Babylonian traditions. Um, and again, right, like we've already kind of loosely referred to this, but I have a note here just saying how... There was a lot of cultural exchange happening with the Semitic Akkadian peoples of the northern Mesopotamia region for generations prior to this um, usurpation and ultimate takeover by um the akkadians in sumeria right okay yeah and this happened like i said about um 1300 bce this guy sargon of akkad sargon doesn't that sound like something from lord of the rings yeah (laughs)
0: absolutely sounds like something from lord of the
1: Rings. exactly so again right we get this rapid integration of uh sumerian mythology and religious practices and a blending of this original sort of Sumerian flood story into Akkadian belief systems. Interesting. Yeah. And so all these deities that were developed in Sumerian culture kind of take on Akkadian counterparts. Where else have we seen this? Um, what, what was it first? Like the... Oh, what came first? The chicken or the egg? Uh, with the Greeks and the... Um, Oh my god, Ooh. I'm totally blanking right now. Like the Greek gods were based off of the earlier versions of
0: Oh, um in, in Egypt, right? Like Egypt, is that what you're referring right. to? Oh, like okay, in yeah. like Herodotus where they're just basically like replacing yeah. a bunch of the
1: yeah. Exactly. Totally. Totally. Yeah, so we get this sort of um blanketing over. It's like it's almost like another it's an overlay over top of um of the original Sumerian system. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so that's where we kind of get into this whole another version of the tale of Hadrahasis.
0: That's right. So mm-hmm. we end up essentially with this blended epic from the Akkadian and the Babylonian traditions, like you've alluded to here, mm-hmm. of, involving this creation of man and then the great flood narrative to go along yeah. with it.
1: And this is way more developed
0: now. So. Oh, I, it just it just keeps adding more and more as we go along here, mm-hmm. which is so cool. It's like just the, the development of human history with this and myth-making. Absolutely love it. <laughs> so written down in the mid-17th century BCE... The story of Atrahasis can be dated by the Colophon. So mm.
1: so it would have been like an emblem or something imprinted onto the text. So it obviously wouldn't be a title page or spine of a book, but that's just a modern, you know. modern
0: interpretation of it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So this would have been dated to the reign of the Babylonian king Hammurabi, who mm-hmm. we've mentioned a, a few minutes ago, the great sorry Who oh, the sorry sorry sorry. the reign of the Babylonian king Hanurabi's great grandson oh yeah rather so this is a few hundred, this is a little bit later yeah. ami saduj 1646 to 1626 BCE although obviously like we've said a million times the tale itself is considered to be much much older passed down through these oral traditions
1: mm-hmm. so but
0: we're going to continue on with the story here
1: yeah so we're almost <laughs> taking a little bit of a back track um because We're actually going to be getting into the original story of man's creation. And so that tale actually begins with relating the story of the labors of these gods. They're really (laughs) hard workers, apparently. And their labors were so great and so strenuous that one day they just decided to lay down their tools and labor no more. Going on strike while they protested to the council of the Anunnaki. Yeah. So, this um, aspect of the story, while not directly related to the flood narrative, it does set the stage for what's to come later, and I believe it's very revealing as to the nature of the gods and what humans were ultimately intended for, Yeah, and then how this <laughs> kind of backfires on these great gods in the end. <laughs> <I> <laughs> insert eye roll. And <laughs> Anyways, okay, so this is from the very beginning here. Quote, when the gods, instead of man, did the work, bore the loads... The gods' loads were too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. The great Anunnaki made the Ajiji carry the workload sevenfold. Anu, their father, was king, their counselor warrior, Elil, or sorry, Ilil, Their chamberlain was Ninurta, their canal controller, Enugi. Cast the lots, the gods made the division. Anu went up to the sky, and Elil took the earth for his people. The Anunnaki of the sky made the Ajiji bear the workload. The gods had to dig out canals, had to clear channels, the lifelines of the land. The gods dug out the Tigris riverbed and then dug out the Euphrates. They were counting the years of loads. For 3,600 years bore the loads of excess. Hard work, night and day, they groaned and blamed each other. So what were they to do? This is me. This is the end quote here. They appealed to their chamberlain, Ninurta, and to their warrior council, or sorry, counselor warrior, Elil, to appeal to the gods, to the ananuka of the mm-hmm. sky, to, re- to relieve them of their labors, essentially. And, you know, what's interesting here, just to, before we continue on with this quote. The great Ananake made the Ajiji carry the workload sevenfold. I didn't actually look into the Ajiji too, too much here. I was kind of focused on the Ananake mm-hmm. and how they're f- kind of factor into here. But that to me speaks again to this hierarchy, right? Definitely. So the God, it's funny, it's like the- <laughs> before man, the gods were man. And so when you get-, get them getting sick of being man, essentially, that's where you get this. Um, next little part here, this little juicy nugget.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, like you said, this is where it sort of starts to get juicy. The council of the Anunnaki agrees that the gods are to be relieved Mm -hmm. and man is created as his replacement.
1: Mm -hmm. That's
0: just, I just want to think about that for a second because that's, 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 that's interesting. Yes. That's odd. Kind it's of. kind
1: of odd. It's like, okay, so here we are in this world. Basically, man doesn't exist yet. No. And they kind of just are like, well, why don't we create something that's very similar to us, but isn't us? And then we'll just get them to do it. Exactly.
0: And, okay, and we're going to touch on this again in part two and later on with Noah and this kind of thing. But I just want to throw it out now. Because the idea in Genesis is that these earlier periods of man, before the flood, was an era where humans... Weren't really humans, mm-hmm. they were different. Noah himself was said to be 500 years old, right? People lived to be, d- d- it was different. They're almost
1: demigods themselves, exactly. People almost take on mythical proportions, exactly. like um, a king Minos or a Solomon or something, where it's like they become more than just human,
0: right? Mm-hmm. And the flood itself is what is what changes almost like
1: oh, it's like the reset button,
0: yeah, in a way. Mm-hmm. And I mean. We could go real crazy and honestly I'm I'm reminded of even things like paracelsus and elementals and things like that, like mm-hmm. how almost the chemistry of the earth can change and therefore the the lifespans and just the, the realities mm. of Earth are different and things Perceptions like that. Of time. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Like all kinds of crazy stuff. Who knows?
1: That's cool. Actually. But
0: okay, but of course okay, so
1: So then we get into the whole idea that um these guys, so everyone is fed up with what they're doing right. and they don't want to do it anymore and they've been digging out essentially creating what is the landscape of mesopotamia and when i was referring in the very beginning was like we're gonna see things like they're digging out. you get reference to them digging out the tigris riverbed digging out the euphrates counting the loads all this kind of stuff is what the actual people themselves would have been doing exactly
0: right? so again Yet it's
1: it's a, it's a parallel to yeah. their reality. It's very cool.
0: It's weird, right? Mm-hmm. So Enki gets involved at this point, though, right? Mm-hmm. So The earth god. So I'll continue reading this here. Enki made his voice heard and spoke with the gods. On the first, seventh, and fifteenth of the month, I shall make a purification by washing. Then one god should be slaughtered. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And the gods can be purified by immersion. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Nitu shall mix clay. With his flesh and his blood, then a god and man will be mixed together in clay. So there's these references mm-hmm. to clay over and over and over again. It reminds me of the golem.
1: Yep.
0: Um, let us hear the drumbeat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. Let her proclaim it as, it as his living sign, mm-hmm. and let the ghost exit so as not exist. to for, Sorry. Let and let the ghost exist so as not to forget the slain god. They answered yes in the assembly, the great Anunnaki who assign the fates. Mm hmm. Okay.
1: So. so it's being decided. They are going to do it. And it, it, so, again, right, we get it's, it's a solution of convenience, right? Yeah. They have all these powers, they have all these abilities. So let's just take some blood from this slain guy over here and just mix it with basically, yeah, the. the the substance of the earth that is the building block i just love that we've gotten so much consistency with these narratives and stuff yeah but essentially okay so once they answer yes in the assembly goddess mommy is the one who (laughs) again recites the incantation while mixing the blood and the clay resulting in man and she repeats the in okay so there is reference here to her um reciting the incantation repeating the incantation repeating 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 all on the orders of enki the god of earth realm so Enki obviously has a lot of um, interest in the creation of man because he doesn't want to keep laboring in these
0: Clearly, things. Yes. So, yeah. so he's
1: basically ordering Mammy to create um, what comes out as seven males and seven females. Okay, so this is where Mami get makes her voice heard by the gods. Okay. Quote, <clears throat> "'I have carried out perfectly the work you have ordered of me. "'You've slaughtered a god together with his intelligence. "'I have relieved you of your hard work. "'I have imposed your load on man.'" You have bestowed noise on mankind. I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. And then this is where Mammy is essentially bestowed this new title of mistress of all the gods because of her work, which was ordered by Enki as he's like, it's kind of like referred to as he's like watching over her shoulder and making sure (laughs) she doesn't stop kind of thing.
0: Just leering.
1: Exactly. And then when the incantation is kind of done, she pinches off as, quote, pinched off 14 pieces of clay and set seven on the right and seven on the left. Between them, she put down a mud brick. She made use of a reed, opened it to cut the umbilical cord, resulting in seven males and seven females. So again, Uh we get a reference to the reed here, which is, one of the main building blocks of sumerian society so there's so much here that is just rich with the parallels between the natural world and their spiritual um ideas and, mm-hmm. and connotations the
0: number seven too is another parallel with this with the flood itself Ooh, Yeah, because yeah. Um, in this version days. it's seven days and then as we progress the, the times change
1: and even in genesis right you get the whole like it was seven days seven nights god created the world yes mm-hmm. lots of yeah lots of parallels there mm-hmm so, what do you think of that whole story there? <laughs> like,
0: I, I mean, I let's discuss a few things. super super interesting, obviously, and we can of course see where these fundamental elements are are exactly. going to come from yep. for the later versions of the story and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I'm I'm most interested in this this divert this splitting between the idea of like what is man, what is God, and what. I don't even know. Like, where is the delineation between the two? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is there? Is there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because we're dealing with. I'm constantly just reminded of like Hercules and like Greek versions of yes. like demigods, like where they're part. They they are mortal to to a certain extent, right?
1: Mm-hmm. But extend past right. those sort of barriers. But there's too. definitely
0: some of these connections with the language and this idea of these gods, and then wanting the wanting man to kind of yeah take over the burden <laughs> of their workload and yeah. the idea that the era of Noah was this era where it wasn't hum- humanity as we mm-hmm. see it now, where it was life is different people are living much longer um i don't even know a bunch of li ching yuns back in the day
1: (laughs) yeah li ching yun i love that guy um that's interesting too the whole idea that again right the the purpose of man as essentially the replacement of god in this um perpetual servitude and how that is later translated in the hebrew bible and in christianity as exactly that like man is in service to god man we are the like not slaves but exactly that servants of god that we speak his word that we do his his bidding all this kind of stuff so we're seeing a lot a lot a lot a lot of things that will be built off of i really yeah the idea that the gods um that there's this hierarchy that gods are slaves or not slaves, but are like forced into working essentially. Mm -hmm. And like the fact that why are, why do gods have to work in the first place? Like why aren't they all just chilling up at Mount Olympus or or wherever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know,
0: I know. Right. Well, that's exactly it. It's like, we're getting into things, ideas, concepts that are so much more ancient that like the, the modern, like yeah, like the modern, version of having a god and then like the people that worship a god is like not the same like I'm even mm-hmm. thinking of this almost mm-hmm. like where you've got these gods doing their thing the the Anunnaki making decisions on a council then you've got the sort of demigods in between and then possibly a realm in and beyond all of this that's almost like H.P. Lovecraft style mm-hmm. like there's like the crazy ancient gods that are way even beyond yeah. the formations that the Anunnaki are or the that these people can perceive as, like, having a human form or Mm -hmm. whatever else it may be. You know what I mean?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. You know, (laughs) I'm kind of thinking to myself now, like, this story, this early genesis or narrative is definitely, like, um it's a celebration and it's almost like a justification of the hardships of the reality that's endured by these Sumerian peoples as they're creating their own garden even right like you can even think of it as a celebration of what they've achieved right and just a way to sort of encapsulate that and immortalize that well
0: and you have to wonder if that what they ended up achieving in in their irrigation and in all this stuff and taking a desolate space and and mastering the tigris and the euphrates if this was the Literal Garden of Eden mm-hmm. 2,000 years later in legend, right? Yeah,
1: that exactly. it was a real place, mm-hmm. a
0: real physical place.
1: And it is very interesting just to think of the fact that this, again, right, one of the earliest versions of religion, we had reference when we were looking at those documentaries to the advent of cultivation of crops, right? That happened about 15,000 BCE. And once that happened and they kind of make this comment about how like man is ultimately ever curious, always trying to learn more, um, understand more, seek more, all this kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. how that's how you get the birth of religion, right? This imagination, this like, there has to be higher purpose. There has to be some sort of connectivity with what I am witnessing in the natural world and how this can be created connected to, exactly to a higher meeting i'm sorry i'm just repeating myself no no it's but, okay. but this whole idea that as an earliest version this is so close to the natural reality that yeah. was taking place i'm sorry i'm just i i find that just so cool no
0: it's it's very profound mm-hmm. it's 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 really cool and obviously this ancient history stuff is our bread and butter we love oh, yeah. it so so much
1: bread and butter baby. do you but want to anyway uh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry go, just one more thought yeah, on yeah, that whole ahead. thing the idea that, again right this celebration aspect is that they achieved so much yeah. in such a, I'm not going to say hostile, but it's such an area that needs such intervention yeah. to create what they wanted it to be in this Garden of Eden. Definitely. So
0: and I'm just saying to say it again, mm-hmm. like, the Egyptians had it easier, like just as yeah. a frame of reference, right? So like more this more ancient civilization, they they had to work way harder and ended up with better results, even arguably, depending on how you're looking at it. Um because this is this is the civilization <laughs> That's kind of hard that to judge, but... Well, it's a civilization that kicked it all off though, right? Exactly. It's like if these if things didn't go the way they did in the few thousand years leading up to the early era of Egyptian civilization, then who knows how they would have fared <laughs> even or whatever. Well, exactly. Who knows yeah. how it all would have gone down.
1: Oh yeah. Like there's so yeah, exactly. So, so much
0: I really wanted to touch on a little bit of like what we're heading into in part mm, two here, yes. though, because mm-hmm. what we've done, obviously, in part one is like framing the legend, framing the, the most ancient aspects of this story of there being the quite possibly a very real global flood
1: mm-hmm.
0: and or a series of localized floods. Because we're working with legend and straddling the line between whether this actually happened or this is just metaphors piled can, on top of metaphors, oh, right? Oh, exactly.
1: If we can use these stories to actually map out a, a real geologic event. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So
0: we're heading towards that, but of course we're going to keep progressing through history here. So part two, you guys can look forward to heading into the era of the ancient Babylonians, mm.
1: the epic
0: of Gilgamesh which happens to have very, very, very direct connections to Genesis and the story of Noah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into Gilgamesh. We're yes. going to get into the, sto- the classic narrative of Noah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The possibility of there being a very real arc located somewhere
1: mm-hmm, exactly and people that have actually recreated exactly versions of it Which
0: people that really have cool. uh tried to find it so we're heading into some epic expeditions and uh some archaeological mysteries here in part two for sure it is
1: pretty crazy how how dense all this is and how essentially like we didn't even really get into the flood <laughs> no <laughs> like with we, we we we've, <laughs> we've gotten up to the point where the gods have set the stage for the next it's almost like part or no i'm gonna say act two
0: Right. They've set the stage for total devastation. (laughs) <laughs> essentially. With their own hand. As Werner Herzog would say, they have set the stage for everyone's impending doom.
1: Impending doom. Um, How will Archer deal with this? That's right. I don't know.
0: This is going to be a three-part series, you guys, just so you know. Probably, yeah. um, uh, There's a lot of epic stuff to get to here, so we're really excited. But um, thank you so much for listening to part one. Yeah. Do we have an idea of, this is a little off topic, but do we know what we're doing? We skipped film Friday this week.
1: We did Strange Story Saturday. Yeah, instead. we had our
0: first Strange Story Saturday. Saturday. It was really fun. Just thought it would be a fun little thing to add in there. So we hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, if you have any suggestions for that, toss them out. Mm-hmm. We always like to get them.
1: Yeah. Cool stories.
0: Reach out to us on our social medias, you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, hit us up. You can email us at IntoThePortalMailbox at gmail.com at Into the Portal podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Come hit us up on our group and um, we yeah, love chatting forum. with people in there. People leave ideas and it's awesome. It's really fun.
1: Exactly. And if you can't get enough of Into the Portal and want to support the show and become part of our larger community, you can hop on over to Patreon. So that's just uh, patreon.com forward slash Into the Portal. Yeah.
0: And we've got some epic new episodes up yeah. this month um, and another one on the way where we are actually um, heading into the jungles of Sumantra in search of the Orang Pendek.
1: Yeah. And we do have a couple of Quick thanks to give that we didn't off the top of the episode. Oh my we god! Got a couple new patrons. We do indeed. <laughs> so we did want to give a thank you shout out to Chris. Chris Rustin. What's up, buddy? Thank and, you so much. Um, And actually, I think we already did give a quick shout out, but thank you so much, Christy and Daniel. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much, you guys.
0: Um, Yeah, the community's really been growing on Patreon lately, and it's awesome. Um, It's what keeps the lights on around here, and we (sighs) love doing this show. Um, It's it's our absolute passion. So we love putting together the Patreon episodes for you guys, and I think people have really been enjoying them, so.
1: I know. I've had so much fun with that this month, and...
0: It's and we've got our
1: uh, full-length episode that's going to be up in the next couple days. That's right. We just released the mini-sode last week, mm-hmm. which I really, really enjoyed. It's it's bizarre. But anyways, yeah, go check it out, and yeah, we'll get you next week.
0: Sounds good, all right? Oh,
1: and of Ooh. course, thank you to Charlene Rambler, our lovely as producer. As always.
0: That's right. Shout out to Charlene. <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, you guys could uh, join on and be a producer as well on Patreon, too. So yeah, hit us up, uh, check out what we have to offer, and until next week.
1: hmm